Daesh, Trump and Brexit. What a way to start 2017. Also, why Russia's got the hots for the Arctic, why more Irish nationals are joining the British Army and why Hitler's back in the bestseller list. Happy New Year, or is it? If 2016 was rocky, what could 2017 mean for the state of the world? After all, it's the day after the night before when all the big decisions were made. James Hurst has been looking forward. 2016. I pledge that I will be president for all Americans. A year of metaphorical earthquakes for the world. The dawn is breaking on an independent United Kingdom. <laughs> And as anyone who's lived in an earthquake zone will tell you, you wait nervously for the tremors that follow. There may be a bigger quake to come. Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, is sure there's more of something on the way. And I think if 2016 was the year of big and unpredictable decisions, then 2017, 2018 will be the years of implications, or the years of implementing decisions. If we learned anything from last year, it is that making predictions is a mugs game. So here goes anyway. Starting with the fight against the Islamic State terror group, Daesh. Mosul probably will fall within weeks. It will leave the group with... No serious territory in Iraq. In Syria, Daesh does look to be losing territory, although much more slowly. But maybe this year or next, the state that Daesh dreamed of will be left with no land. Conservative MP Julian Lewis, who chairs the Commons Defence Committee, warned, though, that wouldn't mean IS had been defeated or destroyed. So then the question is, how do you suppress and contain it? Is there a continuing role for the British military at that point? It depends on what decisions the British government make about the outcomes that it wishes to see in these Middle Eastern Would states. Would you like to see a role for the British military at this point? Only if it's in pursuit of a coherent strategy. The West isn't going to be making any big strategic decisions on the next steps in the fight against Daesh, for at least a few weeks, because America's about to get a new commander-in-chief, a brash businessman turned reality TV star with no political experience. He seems to make policy on Twitter. Everyone wants to be very mature about this and say, well, you know, let's not get too shocked about Donald Trump. But Professor Michael Clark has little optimism about the Donald, who is about to take effective charge of the West diplomatic relations with resurgent Russia a man who suggested that NATO's defence should be on a pay-as-you-go basis, and who this week simply tweeted when North Korea claimed it's readying a nuclear missile that could hit the US. I predict, I think fairly confidently, that we'll see a year of real chaos in American policy with lots and lots of unintended consequences. And what I think will happen is that Trump and the people around him will, will be forced by the autumn of 2017 to get a grip and they will reappoint a lot of people. The uncertainty continues on this side of the Atlantic too. Despite the Prime Minister's repeated assurances, we still don't know what Brexit actually means. Formal talks with the EU will almost certainly start in the spring. But it could go back to square one if Angela Merkel isn't re-elected German Chancellor in the autumn. And if Front National leader Marine Le Pen wins the French presidency in the spring, then Brexit could become a sideshow and all bets will be off. 
That was James Hurst reporting. Well, listening to that with me was Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Paul Rogers, and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Happy New Year to both of you. Paul Rogers, when did we ever start a year like this? It's very difficult to say. I mean, there were extraordinary developments at the end of 1989, beginning of 1990, with the Soviet bloc beginning to show signs of coming apart. It was only a few months before we actually had the Iraq invasion of Kuwait. You go back to 1980 and when uh, basically Ronald Reagan came in, that was another key thing. But this is pretty momentous and I think in spite of uh, you know, the, the best efforts of, of James Hurst, I think it's actually going to be pretty difficult to make any sensible predictions. Mm, We're in a I, very I, uncertain time. I suppose he's paid to do the mug's work, isn't he? Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So, Christopher, um, talking about IS, first of all, could this be the year, as James predicted, that they lose their land? Uh, no. Um, I think because they don't actually have land. What they do have, they have a deployment, they have areas in which they, for the moment, or for a long time, they control. Um, well, they're areas could, then. Yeah, OK, you, you could forget, perhaps, Mosul, you could forget the difficulties that are going on, let us say, in, uh, I don't know, let's say in Syria. Think Turkey. Think Turkey with IS Daesh. And what do you predict in the future. there? Um, stronger stronger attacks in Turkey. Um, already we've got the Turkish government talking to the Americans and saying, don't forget, we're a, we are a NATO state. We may be your eastern border of the, of the alliance, but we are a NATO state. And we now have a much bigger uh, concentration of uh, targets than any other place in the whole Middle East that have some concerns for, for NATO and, of course, America and the United Kingdom and everywhere. I mean, look at what's happened earlier today. Yet another attack in Izmir in Turkey. Why is Izmir important? It's a NATO command centre, mm. uh, and it is easy to get to, and it is vulnerable. And I think so. IS Turkey is a good one to watch. Professor Paul Rogers, what about Iran, Saudi Arabia, Yemen this year? Well, Yemen, I think, is going to be continually difficult for the Saudis. Uh, they simply do not know to how, to how to handle a Houthi rebellion and the methods they've been using have been pretty extreme. Iran is probably looking across the region with a reasonable degree of satisfaction in that you see the Assad regime going to survive. But just to touch on what Christopher said, I agree very much about Turkey. But don't forget what is happening in Mosul. You know, we're now into nearly three months of war. Um, barely a quarter of the city has fallen into Iraqi government forces. And the real problem is the core group that is trying to take the territory from Daesh, essentially we used to call it the Golden Brigade, it's now more commonly known as the Golden Division, the elite forces of the Iraqi army, they are being really crippled uh, in their efforts to get rid of the, uh, the ISIS paramilitaries. They're taking very serious casualties. That has long-term implications for Iraqi internal security, because that is the final force that Abadi and others can rely on. And if that essentially is broken, as it could well be in the next three months, then we have a further problem in Iraq itself. That problem could become what exactly? Well, essentially, I mean, if, if, if Daesh ISIS does eventually lose Mosul, it could well be right through to the summer before that happens. It simply goes down, it almost goes underground. I mean, you know, you have these very nasty bombs being let off in Baghdad. What ISIS wants is more uh, repression of the Sunni minority, it wants sort of internal disorder within Iraq, and it wants to be in a position where the Iraqi government, in whatever form it is in six months' time, has real difficulty in holding the country mm. together. And the key force in holding that country 
is, as I say, the, the, the golden division of the Iraqi army, and they really are being crippled in their efforts to control ISIS in Mosul. Yeah, we, we heard in James's report um, uh, Donald Trump a lot of talk about him and Michael Clark, Professor Michael Clark, the former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, predicting um, unintended consequences uh, and chaos. Uh, Christopher, what okay. do you think will happen come Inauguration Day? Uh, first thing, all American presidents, and I don't think Trump's going to have to be any different, they spent about the first 100 days thinking about the domestic uh, uh, work they've got to do. Um, being a president is about being president of the United States. It's not being about decision-maker over, over, over Yemen, Turkey, or anybody, anything like that. If he can get the first 100 days right, as far as Americans are concerned, I mean, he can build himself a fence down in Mexico way if he likes, but get the domestic thing. Look what he's going to do with uh, Obamacare, you know, the medical programs. Look what he's going to do in terms of jobs. What is he going to do in terms of uh, policy that will affect uh, jobs? If he can get domestic right, then we might see not a different Trump. He might soften? Well, he, he might not Compared soften. Compared to what he's been saying on no, Twitter. No, what he will have right in front of him, he's going to be eyeballed by Congress. Uh, a lot of the stuff he, he, he needs to get through, he may control the Congress in terms of numbers, but a lot of things that he needs to get through, he's going to get through. He has to have Congress with him, and part of it is quite hostile, including his own Republicans, to some of his policies. So, Paul, Paul Rogers, very briefly, after that 100 days, do you think there will be any foreign policy shocks? I think there will be. It'll be t depending very much on what events happen. If there's a major attack on an American facility with many Americans killed anywhere in the world, if Putin tries to uh, cause trouble elsewhere in spite of his huge economic difficulties domestically, then those are going to require reactions. And Trump has given the impression he's going to use strong force. It's worth remembering he's brought in, what, three senior generals into his cabinet and he plans to expand American defence. That is not my idea of a country that is going for isolationism. Still to come, the tussle over territory in the Arctic and recruiting for the British Army in the Republic of Ireland. Thawing ice in the Arctic region isn't just a concern for the polar bears. New shipping lanes are being created and some northern states have already laid claim to the newly defrosted territory. So what does this mean for defence in the region? A committee of MPs has launched an inquiry to find out. Um, Christopher, who's laid claim to what exactly? Well, it's, it's been going on since the beginning of the 90s. And in the mid-90s, for example, um, the Russians actually deployed a Russian flag below the North Pole. Not just below the North Pole, but on the seabed below the North Pole. And here you begin to see, ignore, for example, that you've got all the nodules and the, and the commodities which everybody would like to have. You've got to then look at one massive target. And it's the target to say, who owns? Who says they own? Who says, yes, you're right or wrong? that you own, and therefore you start to look for governing bodies, you like to uh, have to look for territorial confirmation and ratification, etc. Therefore you are heading for trouble, because mm. everybody else is after the same, the same winnings as, uh, as the other person. Professor Paul Rogers, how is it determined who owns what? 
It's going to be very difficult to determine for the simple reason that, in, as distinct from the South Pole, the Arctic is ocean. I mean, the South Pole, the Antarctic, has really been subject to really pretty effective international cooperation in many ways, even though it's now being determined there are some very big mineral reserves there. And I think this is the problem at the moment. You have very large areas of the Arctic which are most proximate to, obviously, to, to Russia. You have big areas for the Canadians. The Danes have an interest there, the Norwegians, and, of course, the Americans through Alaska, and their general interest in the northern hemisphere the other thing is that essentially the arctic is warming up faster than almost anywhere else it is an area of high resources and is much closer to the major economies of course than is the antarctic put those together and what you want is some sort of international convention and don't forget it goes right around the world absolutely and yes. this is you know, it mm. is potentially the most uh, the, the most uh, lucrative seaway mm. that the world has actually seen since Vasco da Gama went round the Cape in 15-whatever. Uh, Paul, you talk about an international, international convention. Uh, we see Russia with six new Arctic bases, uh, 20 in the region now, and it's got this new variant, this MI-8 uh, helicopter, which is capable of, of flying in those areas. I mean, can that work, actually getting everyone to agree? Well, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, I think, in fact, the Canadians are probably more important than we realise on this. They're expanding their capabilities, or admittedly much less. But you've got to remember that Russia is actually a weak economy. You know, the whole, whole Russian economy is only half of that of the British economy. So Putin basically is once again playing weak cards very well, and he's putting a lot of emphasis on the Arctic because that's one area where he does have, if I may use this phrase badly, something of a trump card. We're back to 1990 early yeah. 1990s with the Russians and that was a dangerous period. It was, yeah. Before Rogers, uh, Paul, the, the Defence Select Committee is looking at this and looking what role, if, if any, NATO should be playing more, more strongly in this area. What do you think? What, what, what should they be doing? I think the aim should be to try and go for as, uh, as uh, greatest extent of demilitarisation of the area through common consent. It's going to be very difficult given the current attitudes in, in uh, Russia and, of course, in the United States, but it's absolutely essential. And don't forget get that we've, you know, the clear evidence that was published yesterday, that in fact climate change is happening faster and the so-called pause of the last 10 or 7 years wasn't actually a pause, it was just that more heat was being stored in the oceans and we may see more rapid changes in the Arctic than anybody expects. How does Britain, if at all, fit into all of this? Well, the, the one area Britain fits in very well is it is one country which has an incredible history of really high-grade polar research. At the research level, uh, Britain is probably second only to the United States. It's one so what area... So what can it do with that research, exactly? Well, well, basically point out what is happening, study more clearly what is happening, and maybe through, you know, the, 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 the Foreign Office and some of the think tanks, think through exactly what kinds of agreements you might reach which will present, prevent a new military arms race, which is in nobody's interest whatsoever. But in the long term, the crucial thing is this. Someone has to be the body that says, yes... You own that bit, you can work that bit, you can't do that. And there isn't a body in existence at the moment. And can you imagine the, the difficulties in trying to establish one, presumably through the United Nations? Yeah, not only you will work this bit, but the conditions under which you are allowed to work it by international agreement. It's a huge one. It's probably one of the biggest issues for the next 20 years. So, Paul, just, just how rich are those mineral reserves? Is that really what we're talking about there? It's partly, although I would agree with Chris, people tend to underestimate the navigation significance. One of my sons works in navigation risk analysis. And essentially, if you work in that field, if it becomes easier to 
and the really large cargo ships and container ships through uh, those routes, then it does change the economy a lot. So it's partly resources, but partly also transport. Christopher? This could, you know, we talk about this and the dangers of uh, people getting frisky and miscalculation, etc. It is also, also one of the great opportunities of the, I would say, of the 21st century, this part of the 21st century. To do what? To, to, for the, to isolate the North Pole, but you're not going to have people laying off it, but to come to some agreement and seeing that as a place where great powers, and I include Canada in this because territorial is a great power in this, where they come, can, can come to sort of agreements on how to work together. Now, that's not some idealist sort of talking about it. It's about the only way yeah. that, the, but the, that the exploitation of the North Pole will work. Paul Rogers, um, if you were to imagine, we talk, you've been talking about how, having to get this body together to actually move things forward. I mean, h- how would you start? How would it start? The best way to do it is that some countries, maybe ones with the less intense interest, actually really try to catalyse it. And also it means that, I mean, even you have the simple thing of, of some countries putting really good diplomats and specialists into the UN, better than the UN frequently has, that's the kind of thing which will help it going. If you have lots of, I mean, there's this lovely definition of prophecy which is suggesting the possible. And this is a classic case where you actually have to have really bright, thoughtful people with a global uh, thinking cap actually th- sort of suggesting the possible. Well, the British have got a spare diplomat at the moment. Perhaps they can get him on it. <laughs> yes, he's certainly got the experience. How, yes. how likely is it, do you think, Christopher, that there will be conflict in the Arctic or caused by the Arctic? I think, I, I, you know, you can't predict something like that because of the circumstances. I mean, it's a dangerous place to be. We all know that. But what sort of... It, what a thing it hasn't got, and this is where conflict normally starts is either in ethnic disputes or, basically, it starts with territory and fences. We haven't got that in the Arctic. It is, it is, it is literally virgin territory. That's why I could be, in a weak moment, be optimistic rather than pessimistic about it. Um, let's talk now about a, a very interesting development this week. South Korea opened its counter-nuclear and weapons of mass destruction centre. In it is a specialist unit training to kill Kim Jong-un in the event of war. Now, this is all part of what the South Korean Defence Ministry calls the Massive Punishment and Retaliation Plan. The centre's opening coincided with the announcement on the same day by the North Korean leader that his engineers are close to producing an intercontinental ballistic missile that could carry a nuclear warhead, uh, as far as the states, the claim is, isn't it, Christopher? It is. Uh, and don't forget what, the, what uh, the North Korean leader was, was doing on you know, New Year's Day type thing is what he was expected to do on every day. And, and the general opinion is probably a couple of years, maybe three years. It doesn't actually matter because it will, it's an aeronautical uh, uh, probability that they will produce an intercontinental ballistic missile. And by that we mean... In, in strategic terms, one that, if fired from North Korea, would hit much further than downtown Alaska, and that turns it into a national an international weapon. What is interesting is the South Korean Defense Ministry uh, plan, which is it's like a white paper, which is called Massive Punishment. How long has that been in the making, that Two plan? years. Right. Two years. It's called Massive Punishment and Retaliation Plan. It is the very con- great concern that if there were to be a nuclear confrontation or necessarily the transition to war, which may therefore go to a release. South Koreans long ago, three or, five, three or four years ago, worked out the thing to do was to go after the leader himself. 
because he is the only commander. At, at what point? Um, that is up to them. I mean, you know, I mean, do, you, you know, you look at transition. Transition to war is one of those scales, which is a sort of every six hours. As somebody is brief and says where we've got to, uh, and is it mean that we're going to wait till we get to the, you know, the tactical uh, obvious, and that we get to a certain point, then when there's nuclear race, or, or, or nu- does does the whole thing start with with with, with nuclear race? That we don't know. But the point is, if you go after the North Korean leader because he is such a, a dictator then you may actually get the others to say, OK, we didn't want this anyway. But one of the interesting parts of, of, of the group that's been put, put together to do this, and it's not a new thing. I mean, every country in history has, or, or modern history, is actually, how do we get hold of Hitler? How do we kidnap Castro? How do we do anything like that? But the important thing is uh, the South Koreans believe that the best way of actually preventing the war, which they really believe m- would happen... Um, is to get a, a palace revolution. In other words, the revolution comes in North Korea before... In which case gets, you don't even need this unit. You still need it, because you, you that may not happen. And don't forget the other thing, is the, American, the Americans got 50,000 troops in South Korea. Mm. And so everybody has got a major, as they always have had, a major, a major uh, uh, interest in it. But there's only one fine point which is particularly important. The man at 3 o'clock in the morning knocks on the president's door and says, Mr. President, I think the Russians, or the, the North Koreans, have now got a missile that can do the business, and they've got a lightweight warhead that can do the business. Mm. He says, what can I do about it? And mm. there is the problem. Do you go bomb it? Do you get somebody else to bomb it? Do you, do you hope? Or yeah. do you do what the North Koreans are most unlikely, but is the only likelihood from the Western point of view, do you talk? Um, I mean, do you give them respect? Paul Rogers, I mean, this week when this this, uh, announcement was made, Donald Trump, he tweeted, that's not going to happen. What did you read into that comment? I think it's because he didn't know what to do and he had to say something. It's as simple as that. More like, I don't want that to happen then. Yeah, I think so, yes. I mean, you know, always in in this, and I know Chris has said this on many occasions, the key actors here are China, very much so. They do not want... Which he did actually call upon as well, didn't he? He did indeed, yes. And that's interesting because, I mean, in some ways there's more antipathy towards China uh, from the incoming Trump administration, or there seems to be, than there will be as far as Russia is concerned. So just to even mention China in that context was interesting. And that's got a lot to do with trade and the Pacific yeah. re- uh, yes. negotiations. If Trump can get that one fixed, he may have a better hearing in Beijing. Yeah. Now, if the headlines are to be believed, Hitler's Mein Kampf was a popular Christmas present in Germany this year. The annotated edition, which was published last year, has become a bestseller. Professor Dr Magnus Brechten is from the Institute of Contemporary History in Munich and joins us now. Uh, good to speak to you today. Um, why do people want to read this? Well, the book was uh, only available as its original uh, text before uh, the end of 2015. So anyone who wanted to read an annotated critical edition had uh, to have a new version. So before 2015, uh, you could buy the book, you could read the book uh, in its original version. Now you can have the book with a plethora of historical information, with research-based annotations. And uh, quite a lot of people were interested in it, although I have to say that the, the most of the interest was in the first part of the year, not so much on Christmas. And who exactly was interested in it? 
sorry, who was interested. Well, there is um, a general readership in uh, the history of the 20th century and the history of National Socialism, two of the most popular books on uh, history of uh, of Hitler and National Socialism are actually written by British historians. Ian Kershaw has published a two-volume uh, Hitler biography, which sold several hundred thousand copies uh, in 1998 and 2000. And Richard Evans, another British historian, wrote a um, three-volume book on the Third Reich, which also sold several hundred thousand copies. So there's a general interest in, in the history of the 20th century, and particularly in National Socialism. And Hitler and Mein Kampf does not make an exception, particularly since it's for the first time that um, a, a commented version is now available. Mm, I understand that it has been bought by libraries, it was reported that it was bought by library schools uh, as well as history academics. Uh, is it the kind of things that schools take seriously in study? Um, people uh, who, as far as we know, the buyers are those people who usually buy history books in general, who are interested in, in uh, the academic way of describing um, and, and analyzing historical um, development. So uh, anyone who, are, who is interested, let's say, in the history of, of the Second World War or in the history of National Socialism or also in the history uh, of the 20th century in general is a possible buyer and reader. And there is uh, quite a uh, several hundred thousand people out there who mm. are uh, part of this group. And did you did you buy it? And if so, what did you make of it? Well, I'm a part of the uh, institute, so uh, I I, I uh, managed the book, so to speak. I, I didn't have to buy it. I, what do you think it really brings, though? To I mean, what, what 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 do you think people get extra out of it that they didn't get before? Uh, well, uh, the book is based on seventy years of research. It uh, has three thousand seven hundred annotations, little essays on all aspects of topics, uh, persons, developments, which are mentioned in the book. So anyone who is interested in, in uh, 20th century history and the meaning of National Socialism in 20th century history will find uh, a, a wide range of information as a first start and then have the opportunity due to a very wide range of uh, literature to go deeper if he sh or she wants to. Mm. So it's it's a first, it's a gate into mm. uh, research and information on national socialism, on history, right. on Hitler, on the Third Reich. Well, good to speak to you, Professor Dr. Magnus Brechten from the Institute of Contemporary History in Munich. Thanks for your time today. Now, the British Army is successfully enlisting new recruits from the po Republic of Ireland. More than 230 Irish citizens joined the British forces between 2013 and 2015. Let's talk to the veteran Belfast journalist and author David McKittrick. Good to speak to you today, David. The Irish papers are carrying this story this week, but hasn't the British Army always recruited from the Republic? Absolutely. I mean, we uh, can go as far back as Nelson's Navy and the Duke of Wellington and even further back. And in both world wars, there have been a lot of Irishmen. Uh, I suppose it's different now in that Ireland, the south of Ireland is a totally independent uh, country. But even so, the, um, it, it, the, the, that link has never been broken. You always get uh, Irish guys joining the forces. There's a couple I know personally who have been off in, in the last 10 years or so. And uh, really, it's, it's, there's a lot of unemployment in the Irish Republic, of course. And one, one of these guys I saw was, was talking about he wanted to see the world. And he obviously will be able to do that um, at, at the same time as having a job if you join the British Army or the other parts of the British forces. Mm -hmm. It's been described as a recruitment boom. Would you see it that way? 
Not quite. We're talking about hundreds here rather than thousands. But uh, the, there, are, there is that link which has never really been broken. And there, there are still... The, the Irish Republic's economy has recovered a lot since the dark days of 10 years or so ago. Mm. But there's still quite a lot of... There's still quite a bit of job shortage quite a lot of immigration to Australia and so on and this in, in maybe in a way you could say this is a variation on the, the overall immigration. Just briefly David how much of a security risk is it for an Irish national to sign up? Uh, there was a scare a few years ago with when dissident Republicans um, uh, were, were were said to be targeting uh, uh, members of the British forces but those risks seem to have uh, 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 deteriorated an awful lot and uh, as a result of that uh, you're now getting more men joining up Alright, David McKittrick, good to speak to you thank you for your time today um, Christopher, NCOs do pretty well don't they from the Irish Republic there well, are a lot of them in the British Army apparently or they, they get to that, that post, that rank Well, yes, yes they do but it's not just in the Army it's in the Navy um, uh, about three years ago I was talking to a guy in the Navy who was from all places, Dundalk, which is the last place you'd expect anybody to join the British forces. But there's always been 80 or 90 so mm. have joined from Ireland and especially with families. If you go to Sligo, Donegal, you find a lot that have joined in the British, uh, the British forces. And that's a cross, if you like, a cross-border family thing as well. Um, but it's not the only place they come from. I mean, the British Army has always been about one-third full of people who weren't necessarily born in Britain, mm. uh, which is not bad, especially when the Fijians join the army, and then the army rugby does rather well. <laughs> and that is all we have time for today. We'll be talking about rugby sometime, no doubt, this year. My thanks to all of our guests, to Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, Christopher, of course. And tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. So from me, Kate Chabot, Happy New Year. Speak to you same time next week. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. There's been another...